be in prayer for Pastor as he's traveling this, uh, this uh, weekend. Be in prayer for us amateurs as we're going in for him here. <laughs> Speaking of us amateurs, we both have something in common, me and you. You don't know what I'm going to say. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We've got a, a message prepared for you that I hope will be a blessing to you this morning out of Nahum. By way of introduction, we recently, uh, I recently just finished a series on the book of Jonah. We're all pretty well familiar with the story, but for a recap, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And at the time, it was one of the largest, if not the largest nation. And it was a very wicked city, Nineveh was. They were known for their cruelty. Jonah had been commissioned by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. A message of judgment. Nineveh, uh, Jonah didn't want to go do that, as we know, so he ran away from God. God brought him back corrected him, gave him a commission a second time to go preach to Nineveh. So he did this time, preached that in 40 days the city was going to be overthrown. And we saw Nineveh, from the greatest to the least of them, they all repented of their sins, and God forgave them. Now, we know Jonah wasn't very happy about that, um, but the point is that God turned away the judgment that he had planned against Nineveh and forgave the people of the city. And that brings us to the book of Nahum. Many believe that this Prophecy from Nahum took place about a hundred years after the time of Jonah when the destruction of Nineveh had been turned away. So let's see what we find regarding the city of Nineveh now in Nahum chapter 1. The Bible says this, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned in his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His, his fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image, and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vow, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray and we'll get into this passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your word that you provided to us and for the instruction that we can find in it, for the things that we can learn about you, for the way that you teach us about you in your word. I pray that as we open this passage and as we look into it, it would be profitable to your people, that it would be a blessing, that it would be a challenge, and that as I preach it, that it would be um, what you would have me to say. Thank you that uh, you've given us the opportunity to come and meet here and to hear your word. I pray that you'd be pleased and honored with the preaching, that you'd be pleased and honored with our hearts and our attitudes as we 
receive a preaching and as we respond to it. And I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I have three points that I want to look at today from this passage. First of all, we'll look at the reason for the judgments of Nineveh, the, the surety of the sureness of the judgment against Nineveh, and then a message of comfort for God's people. So to start out, we're going to look at the reason for God's judgment. Um, we don't have much of an introduction into the book here. It just starts out, just a short verse, verse number one, just introduces the book, and then it starts into the judgment here. The book is referred to as the burden of Nineveh. It's a message that was sent to Nineveh, and it was a very weighty and serious message. Nahum the prophet is only briefly introduced as the Elkishite here. We don't find much about him elsewhere in the Bible. And I believe that this was kept short on purpose. That way, instead of relying on the authority of Nahum and who he was as a person, that we would understand that the authority was from God. Um, it appears, though, it says that it's the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. It appears that instead of Nahum going and personally preaching this message to the Ninevites, that he wrote down this message in a book and sent it to the Ninevites somehow for them to read it and to hear it and to understand it. So after that, the message just jumps right into the, the message of judgment. So why was it that Nineveh was being judged? We get some hints as we look through this passage regarding why Nineveh was, was being judged. When just 100 years before, God had judgment prepared for them, but decided not to judge them because of their repentance. But first we see that they were the enemies of God. In verse number two, um, in the last part, it says, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. In verse number eight, we see it says, uh, darkness shall pursue his enemies, speaking of the enemies of God. And then in verse 11, it speaks of one Likely the king of Nineveh at the time, or the, the king that, that, uh, that would be referred to, the king Sennacherib, was described as a wicked counselor um, who took, imagined evil against the Lord. So what was it that made Nineveh the enemies of God? It wasn't God that made himself the enemy of Nineveh. It was Nineveh, Nineveh that made themselves the enemy of God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We understand that's the case. About 100 years ago, God was ready to strike down Nineveh, as I mentioned. But uh, when they repented and mourned for their sin, God turned away his wrath and forgave them. Again, in those 100 years since that time, God didn't change. He didn't decide, well, I don't like Nineveh anymore. I, I forgave them earlier, but I, you know, I changed my mind. I really do want to destroy them now. The fact was that what did change was Nineveh's attitude towards their sin. Nineveh, when they heard Jonah's message, even as... as um, Unwilling as Jonah was to go and preach the message to them. And even as short and small as that message that he preached to them was, the people there, they, they heard that message and they believed it. They heard that God was going to destroy them because of their wickedness and they believed what God said. And so they turned away from their sin. But just a short hundred years later or so, those same people, they had turned back to their sin. They knew that their deeds were evil. They had turned away from it. And while none of them were likely still alive from the time of Jonah, or maybe if there were people that were still alive, they would have been very young at the time that Jonah had preached, and they were now very old. Even if none of them were still alive, doubtless everyone in the city had heard the story. They understood that God had sent this prophet to warn them of judgment that was to come, and that they'd heard of the repentance of the city and how God turned from his judgment. But Nineveh then returned to their sin as a dog returns to its vomit, as the proverb says. 
Matthew Henry in his commentary on this passage said this, The reprieve will not be continued if the repentance be not continued in. If men turn from the good they began to do, they can expect no other than that God should turn from the favor he began to show. God didn't change over that time period, but Nineveh did. They returned back to their sin. And by doing so, they became God's enemy. They made themselves God's enemy. They had gained a reprieve for a little time, but when they turned away from turning away from their sin, and they returned to that which God hated, which was their sin, that caused the, the, the judgment to return. So we see that God was going to judge Nineveh because of their wickedness. They were a wicked city because they were, they were his enemies. And we see that their wickedness went hand in hand with the fact that they were enemies. They were enemies of God because of their wickedness. Chapters 2 and 3 continue on and go more into detail about the wickedness of Nineveh. We won't look at that right now. Um, but again, verse 11 speaks of the one who imagines evil against the Lord. It's again believed that this refers to King Sennacherib, who would later besiege Jerusalem. If you'll turn to Isaiah, we'll keep our place here in Nahum, but Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to look a little bit more about the story of this. In Isaiah chapter 36. There's a parallel passage to Isaiah 36 that you can find in uh, the book of 2 Kings. It's almost, uh, it's very, very, very similar to this passage here in Isaiah 36. But we see here, um, we'll just read through the chapter actually, and I'll kind of explain uh, the story. I'm sure we're pretty well familiar with that as well. But in verse number one, it says, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which is over, by, over the house, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the reporter. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Will thou trust us in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt? Whereout if a man lead, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So was Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. But if he say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away? When such Judah and to Jerusalem ye shall worship for this altar? Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able, on thy part, to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of thy master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? For the Lord said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim and Shemnah to Joah, and Joah, Joah to Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and speak not unto us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. For Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master, and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Hearken not to Hezekiah for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by present, and come out to me, and eat ye every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of his own sister, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand? For the Lord shall deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the reporter, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So in this passage, we have the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sending his army to take over the land of Israel. And Israel at the time knew, pretty much everyone in the world knew that Assyria, they were the, the superpower at the time. And so when the king, or when the, the army of Assyria came to come and take Israel, it was very distressing for them. They were, they were basically thought, we've got no chance against any of these things. And so Rabshakeh, the, the spokesman of the king, he comes to the Israelites and is telling them, hey, basically, I want to, I'm going to come take over. So we can do this peaceably my way, or we can do this the hard way. If you do it my way, if you just surrender, I'll give you some great things, and I'll take you to a land of corn and wine, and, and it'll be a great thing for you. But if not, then nobody's going to be able to rescue you out of my hand. I'm going to destroy you. So he boasted as well that even God wouldn't be able to destroy or to, to save Israel out of Sennacherib's hand. He said, look at all these other gods of all the other nations that I've conquered. Have all those gods been able to help them? They haven't been able to do anything. So don't let your king tell you, he's trying to poison their minds against their king. Don't let your king say, we're going to trust in the Lord our God, because your God can do nothing against me. Rabshakeh and Sennacherib, the Assyrians, they were lifted up in pride. They were wicked. They were God's enemies because of their wickedness. And so God is saying to Nahum here, this, this took place um, about, as the, the experts would say, about 15 years before Sennacherib came in and, and waged war against Jerusalem. So this message was coming um, before the time that Sennacherib would come and try to take over Jerusalem. Because as we'll find in a little bit, soon after that, as, as he's waging war against Jerusalem, is when God destroys all of Sennacherib's army. But this is about 15 years before. God is warning Sennacherib. He's warning the Assyrians. He's warning Nineveh that they're going to be destroyed because they're God's enemies. Because of their wickedness, because of the things that they have done, they turned away from doing good, they turned away from doing right, they turned away from the repentance that they had before, and they turned back to their wickedness, so they're going to be destroyed. God is making it very clear to them. And so next we see the surety of the judgment that was coming upon them. The surety is, it was very sure. The message of um, Nahum was sent to Nineveh. It was sent for them to read, to hear, to understand. It was something that God intended that they know and that they be aware of. It wasn't that God was going to launch some sort of sneak attack against them. He's putting them on notice here. He's telling them exactly what he's going to do. Now, the Ninevites may have heard, they may have read this message. I don't know how it was that all of Nineveh would have heard this message if this, they would have had several messengers take this message and read it aloud to the people. Or maybe if they would have 
published it somewhere in the streets for people to read or anything like that. But the Ninevites may have heard or read this message and been doubtful as to whether God was even capable of doing such a thing as he said that he was. After all, they may have heard about Jonah 100 years ago and the story that the city wasn't destroyed. And they might have thought to themselves, well, you know what? Maybe the city wasn't destroyed, not because we repented, but because God's not even able to destroy the city. Maybe this God's not even real. Maybe it's just like the other gods of all these other nations that we've conquered. I don't know exactly their idea of these things. Maybe they thought that they were going to call God's bluff this time. Well, last time he didn't actually destroy the city, so maybe we'll give, our, give it a chance this time. But the message of Nahum makes it very clear to Nineveh that this isn't an empty threat. If you're telling somebody what to do, or if you're telling them about something that's going to happen, it might be helpful for them to understand why they should listen to you. Maybe for parents, it's enough for your kids to know that you're their parents, so that's why they need to listen to you. Or maybe if you're in the military, maybe it's because your commanding officer is the one that's telling you to do this, and that should be enough for you to go and do it. In this, in the book of Nahum, God is giving the Ninevites every reason to believe him. He's telling them why they should listen to him and why they should hearken to what he's saying. And he establishes um, that he is the authority here and that they should listen to him. Now, there's three things that have to come together in order for somebody to do something. They have to want to do that thing. They also have to have the ability to do that thing, the capability, the strength, the whatnot. And they also have to have the opportunity to do it. Imagine if you wanted to go and cook an egg. You would have to have the desire to go and do it. You'd have to want to do it. You'd have to have the physical ability to do it. If you didn't have any hands or anything like that, so I'm sure people would be able to figure out a way to do it anyways. But if they didn't have the capability of doing it, then they wouldn't be able to do it. But also you have to have the opportunity to do it. So if you don't have any eggs, you're not going to be able to make any eggs. But if you have the desire to make eggs, and you have the ability to do it, and the opportunity to do it, then you'll go and make eggs, unless there's something that stops you or prevents you from doing it. Whether it be you change your mind, or somebody physically restrains you and says, no, you're not going to make the eggs, or whatever it is. But if you have those three things, you're going to go and do that thing. Now, God in this passage is saying that he's going to bring judgment upon Nineveh. And he establishes in this chapter that he has all three of those things that are necessary to do it. He has the desire to do it. He has the ability to do it and the opportunity to do it. So first he establishes, um, he establishes each of these things, three things with the emphasis on his ability and his strength to be able to do it. Several descriptions throughout our passage here describe his strength, his abilities, and his intent and opportunity. So I'll briefly run through them. God first describes himself as jealous and as vengeful in, chapter, in verse number two. God is jealous and the Lord are vengeant. The Lord are vengeant and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his enemies, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. He's described as here being very determined to carry out this judgment. He describes himself as slow to anger in verse number three, um, and great in power. He begins further descriptions of his strength here. It means that he's very capable of carrying out the judgment. And the opportunity would present itself when Sennacherib would come and wage war against Israel. Now, it wasn't that God didn't have the opportunity at the time. At the moment that he sent this message, he had the opportunity, of course, to destroy Nahum. But he planned it in, in such a way that he would bring Sennacherib to him to destroy him. So going back to his strength in verse 3, God speaks about how he has his way in the whirlwind. 
and in the storm. The clouds he speaks of as the dust of his feet. Now the weather is something that amazes us. Um, it's something that astounds us. It's something that is powerful. It can be unpredictable at times. It can be impossible to, to control. And yet we know that the weather is perfectly in God's control. A few years ago, Heather and I went down to Florida for a vacation. We stayed at this house off of the beach. It was a really nice house. Um, but then last year, they had Hurricane Ian came through. It hit exactly in that area that we had been staying in. And a little while after that, a relative of ours was traveling in the area and took, a, took some photos and some videos of that, that area that we had stayed in. The house that we were in and all the houses around it were gone. Not just destroyed, it was literally gone. There was nothing left of it. It was a brick house and there, the, there, was, there was nothing left to be found of it. It just been, been completely wiped out by the storm. And that house was one of many that were destroyed in that storm. The God that is speaking to the, the people of Nineveh here is the God that controls those kind of storms. The hurricanes, the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the tornadoes, all those things, they are summoned at his control. As we find in the New Testament, Jesus was the one who completely calmed the storm. Just in the middle of, uh, in, in the middle of that huge storm, just a, a word from him, the storm stopped. As Jonah found out earlier, before when he was sent to Nineveh, God was in control of the, the weather there as well. And God is telling the Ninevites, I'm the one that controls the weather. I'm the one that controls all of creation. I'm the one who controlled it. I'm the one who made it. In verse number four, it talks about how he can dry up seas and rivers. In verse number five, even the mountains, they quake at him and the hills melt. The earth is burned in his presence. Verse number six talks about his fury and his anger. That nobody can stand before his indignation, before his fury. He's, he's unstoppable. His fury is poured out like fire. In verse number eight, it talks about how he controls the floods. He controls darkness. He was going to, like a flood, he was going to bring an end to Nineveh. And darkness would pursue his enemies. In verse number nine, God is so powerful that the imaginations that they might imagine against the Lord are vain. In verse number 11, he also talks about the one, again, Sennacherib, that is imagining evil against the Lord. So in summary, God is in control of all things. He's the one that controls nature. He created it. He's in control of the mountains, the hills, the seas, the oceans, the rivers, and all those things. God establishes his strength. <coughs> he lets them know, this is the God who's telling you that you're going to be destroyed. The God that controls all of these things. The Almighty God. The one that all of your imaginations are nothing compared to Him. And what does Nineveh have? What can they do against God? He talks about their, their imaginations. All they are are imaginings. They're, they're fantasies. That they might destroy God or that they might prevail over God. And none of their plots, none of their plans, none of the things that they can do against God are going to last. In Psalm 2, the Bible says this, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against this anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. God isn't intimidated at all by the Ninevites here. He's not threatened by them. He's not threatened by their imaginings and by their plots and all of their plans. The threatenings of man to God are like the threats of a little toddler that they might be to you. The toddler might breathe out threatenings and 
killings and all those sorts of things, but he doesn't have the ability or the strength or the skill to carry those things out. And so it is with man to God. We saw the haughtiness and the pride and the, the uh, just the pure arrogance that Sennacherib and Rabshakeh had as they came to Jerusalem. He said, who is this God that's going to save you? And he said, is, is Pharaoh going to save you? Interestingly enough, Pharaoh was the one who, years and years before, basically said the same thing. Who is this God that I should obey him? Why should I obey this God? Well, he was, they were about to learn who this God was. Now, God is slow to anger for sure, as he said even in this passage. But slow to anger does not mean that his anger never comes. For Nineveh, God's wrath was reserved, it was stored up. It wasn't that Nineveh had accidentally slighted God, that you know they were trying to do the right thing, but accidentally did something that God didn't like, and now he was going to destroy them. No, they had made themselves God's enemy. And they were determined to destroy the people of God is what they wanted to do. This God who controlled the weather, who has the clouds to the dust of his feet, he's well able to carry out the vengeance. And he's made it very clear here that he's determined to do it. He had all those three factors that were needed to judge Nineveh. He had the opportunity, the ability, and the, the desire to do it. This judgment on Nineveh was going to include a few things. In verse number two, it says vengeance upon God's enemies. So he was going to take vengeance. In verse number three, he said that he would make an end of their place. Uh, actually, that's not in verse number three. That's uh, in verse number eight, I think. Um, in verse number 10, he says that they would be folded together like thorns. Almost like when maybe you're clearing out some bushes or some brush out of your yard. And you're taking all of these, these brushes and, and the, the, the brush and the bushes and the sticks and all those things. And you're folding them together. That way you can get them into the fireplace. Basically what God's going to do to Nineveh. Um, they, he speaks of how um, they're like drunkards. And, and as a drunkard, many uh, people respond differently to, to intoxicating beverages, but a lot of times you deal with drunkards that are very upset and proud and very full of rage. And even in the midst of that, the Bible says in verse number 10 that they would be devoured as stubble fully dry. Stubble fully dry is the type of stuff that you want to use to be able to start a fire. Because it lights very quickly, it burns pretty hot, but it doesn't last very long. And so that was going to be Nineveh. They're just going to be utterly destroyed by God. In verse number 12, it, it appears that their numbers would give them comfort. That they thought, we've got so many of us, there's nothing that can happen to us. And yet when the angel of the Lord came, as we'll see in a minute, they would be cut down. As verse number 9 said, affliction would not rise up a second time. God was going to destroy them so decisively that they would never be a threat again. They would never be a problem again. In verse number 13, they were going to try to place upon God's people would be broken. And the bonds would be burst in sunder. And in verse number 14, um, he talks about what he's going to do to their gods. Out of the house of their gods, he's going to destroy, um, let me see, he cut off the graven image and the molten image. Their images, their, their gods would be broken and destroyed. And then I find it interesting at the end of verse number 14, he says, I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. A lot of times, maybe there's that empty boast, I'm going to bury you. People will say that sometimes. But when that threat comes from, from God, that's a very serious threat. God said that he would make their grave. I think that they should be trembling when they heard that. But obviously they didn't. And so this message was sent to Nahum, and 
we're not told what would have happened, right? We're never told what would have been had something else happened. Had Nahum's message been sent to Nineveh, and had they repented, who knows what would have happened. Maybe God would have turned away his judgment. Um, but they were fully determined not to repent. They had turned themselves and they were made fully the enemies of God at this point. And so God, he even warned them what was going to happen, and yet they hardened their hearts all the more. Reminds us again of, of Pharaoh, when God just continually hardened his heart. The first, uh, in, in Exodus, when he when it speaks of Pharaoh and the, the plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He's the one that hardened his heart against God. But then towards the end, with the latter plagues, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So I think at this point, Nineveh had gotten to the point where they hardened their hearts so much that God said, you know what? You want to harden your hearts? I'm going to harden your hearts, and then I'm going to utterly destroy you. And that's what he did. <clears throat> and we see here this message is very... It's crossed very strongly. Starting in verse number two, it jumps right into it. That God's jealous. He's vengeful. He's going to destroy them. This great, powerful God was going to be against the Ninevites. Now, this exact same message of woe and destruction and this, this message of uh, judgment upon Nineveh, as strong and as heavy and as weighty and as serious as it was, was a message of hope and comfort to God's people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Bible says, For we are unto God a sweet Savior of Christ, and them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the Savior of death unto death, and to the other the Savior of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Think back to in the Old Testament when the Philistines sent out Goliath as their champion. They sent out Goliath because he was giant, he was huge, he was trained in war, he was, uh, he was the best that they had. All the things that terrified the Israelites about Goliath, all the things that made them afraid and made all the men of war, including Saul himself, their king, to shrink back and be afraid of Goliath, all those things that made them afraid of, of that giant were the things that delighted the Philistines. They, his strength scared the Israelites, but it delighted the Philistines. His skill was something that caused the Israelites to fear, but it delighted the Philistines. And why was that? because of what side of the, the battlefield they were on, right? Goliath wasn't one person to the Israelites and another person to the Philistines. He was the same guy. But one, he was their champion. The other, he was the person that they feared. And so it is on a much larger scale when it comes to God in this passage. He's good to have as a friend, but terrible to have as an enemy. And the Ninevites would find that out. Now, the Ninevites should have read this passage and quaked before God, as it says the mountains and the hills be before him. It's terrible, uh, that judgment that was about to come upon them. Now, the descriptions of God here in this passage, had they taken them to heart and they read them and they listened to them and believed them, should have been enough to terrify them. But we know that they ended up ignoring this message. But as God has described here, each of those descriptions that made God terrible and intimidating and horrible and, and scary, or as it should have to the, to the Ninevites, are things that should endear him to his people. God is described as jealous in verse number two. To his people, that's a good thing. God is jealous over his own. And that's one of the reasons he was going to be bringing judgment to Nineveh. From a human perspective, this seemed impossible. Assyria was the, the greatest superpower of the day. They had chariots, they had horsemen, they had footmen, they had everything. They had the most 
up-to-date, technologically advanced army at the time. But what wasn't taken into account uh, by Hezekiah and all of these people as they quaked was that God was on their side. Now God's people weren't on the receiving end of his wrath. His wrath was against the enemies of God. Um, I think this message here from Nahum was, was sent to the Ninevites. First to put them on notice, to let them know what was going to happen. Okay, just so you know, you're going to get destroyed because you guys are wicked. God is going to destroy you. And it was to put them on notice for their wicked deeds and to tell them they're going to be destroyed. But I think there was another purpose to this message, which was to bring comfort and encouragement to God's people. To remind them of the power of the living God that they serve. If you'll turn back to Isaiah, this time to chapter 37, I'll point out a couple of things here. In Isaiah chapter 37, I'll kind of pick up the rest of the story, what happened from here. So when we left off, Rabshakeh had, had told his message to the, the recorder and the scribe and then the world of the household. And they told, they told Rabshakeh, hey, we understand your language, speak it in, in your language. Because they didn't want the people to hear and be intimidated by what Rabshakeh was saying. But he um, continued to speak in their tongue so that everyone would be intimidated by what he was saying. And so they went to Hezekiah and they said, oh man, we're in big trouble because this guy, he's got a huge army, they're going to destroy us. And so Hezekiah, <clears throat> um, when they came to him, they were renting their clothes, they were in mourning. They basically, we're, we're doomed, there's nothing that's going to happen that we can do to help ourselves. So we see Hezekiah's response. <clears throat> in chapter 37, verse 1, And it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard of it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And then we move down to verse number 10. <clears throat> <clears throat> so Rabshakeh, he, after he left, he then sent a letter to the Israelites, basically with the same type of threats. Um, he sent messengers, I guess. Uh, in verse number 10, this is um, Rabshakeh saying this. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed as Gozan and Haran and and the children of Eden, which were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, and the king of Arphad, and the king of the city of Surveyathim, um, Hina and Iba? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art God, even thou alone. Uh, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he had sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste, uh, have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands. Wood and stone, therefore have they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that the kingdoms of earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. So we see Hezekiah, as he comes to the Lord and he responds to the letter that was sent to him by Rabshakeh, 
His response isn't to get gather the men of war, to get the counselors together and say, okay, how are we going to fight off Sennacherib? How are we going to destroy them? Because he knew that really it was hopeless. There was nothing that they could do. And so he went to God and basically he spread this letter before God and said, hey, here's my problem. This is what's going to happen. And yes, it's a very legitimate threat that we're facing because um, Sennacherib, he has indeed destroyed all these other nations and he has taken over all these other lands. And we need to help. Hezekiah realized that he couldn't defeat Sennacherib. There was nothing that he could do. The city wasn't fortified enough to keep him out. His army wasn't strong enough to overcome him. From a human perspective, there was nothing that could be done, and he was in despair. But then God responds to Hezekiah. He sends Isaiah in verse number 21 to give a response. And what's that response? We see it here. Verse 21, then Isaiah the son of Amos sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, whereas thou hast prayed to me, against the king of Assyria. This is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee, and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom, thou, whom hast thou reproached with blasphemy? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice, and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy, thy servants thou hast reproached the Lord, and hast said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof. And I will enter into the height of his border, and the forest of his carmel. I have digged and drunk water, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of the, the besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Um, now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldest be, laid, uh, shouldest be to lay waste defense cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were a small power, they were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field, and as the green herb, and as the grass on the roots of uh, the housetops, and as the corn blasted before it be grown up. But I know thy abode, and thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. It's almost that uh, modern day threat. I know where you sleep. Basically, what God's saying here. Because thy rage against me, and thy tumult has come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my foot in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back the way which thou camest. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year, such as groweth of itself, and the second year, that which springeth of the same. And in the third year, so ye and reap and plant vineyards, and eat the fruit thereof. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of the King, uh, saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast the bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall they return, and they shall not come into the city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. So we see God, his response was, Who are you? Who are you, Sennacherib, that you think that you can come up against me? That you can threaten my people? That you can destroy my people? You don't know who you've raised your voice against and raised yourself up against even the Holy One of Israel and so we see these threats here that God is, has, has made in, in Nahum that they, uh, they come to pass, they're fulfilled in verse 36 uh, through 38 then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrian a hundred and fourscore and five thousand and when they arose early in the morning behold they were all dead corpses 
So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping the house of Nisroch his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer his son smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Ezarhaddon his son reigned in his stead. And so we see all these threats that God made against Nineveh, and all these, uh, the judgment he said he was going to bring upon them, they came to pass. In one fell swoop, the angel of the Lord came through at night while they were all sleeping and destroyed 185,000 of their army. Sounds like that was probably the whole army, I'm not sure. But to put this into perspective, the largest stadium here in the United States is MetLife Stadium. It's the home of the New York Jets and the New York Giants. That stadium holds 82,500 full capacity. So that stadium, filled to capacity with all the elite warriors of the day, wouldn't have even held half of Sennacherib's army at the time. And yet with one angel, God destroyed that army. Surely Sennacherib trusted quite a bit in that army, being that they were so large. They were the reason he was so successful. And so they're all destroyed, so he went home. And while he was worshiping his God, then his own life was taken from him by his sons. God's anger at his enemies, his power, his strength, his magnitude, all those things should provide comfort to his people. The enemies of God are strong at times. They seem unbeatable. It seems as though sometimes you look at this world system and you see how strong and how powerful the people are that are in power. And how corrupt oftentimes. It seems like nothing that they do can be can they be held accountable for? They do all these things and, and they seem to get away with it. Now I've often referenced Psalm 73, so we won't turn there again. But there the psalmist was despairing at how he looked at the wicked, how strong they were, and how mighty, and how no matter what they did, it seemed to turn to gold, and that nothing could touch them. And that no matter how good the people of God were, and how much they tried to serve God and do what was right, that it seemed that they were struggling, and that they were persecuted, and that they could never make it by in life. But then he remembered, he said, he, he was almost, his feet had almost well nigh slipped until I saw their end. Because he remembered the end that was going to be of these individuals, these the enemies of God, the wicked, that God was going to destroy them. Sennacherib's army came to an end in one night when the angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000. Truly, the horses prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Sennacherib then went home, lost his life, and soon afterwards the up-and-coming Babylonian Empire would come and overtake the Assyrians. And all the things that God spoke of here in, in Nahum, all the judgments, the fact that they were going to, that he would make an utter end of the place there, and the darkness would pursue his enemies, all that came to pass. It came to pass, it took maybe about 15 years or so, but it came to pass. And it was all orchestrated by God. The Lord truly is terrible. He's mighty. He's lofty and high. It should frighten and scare his enemies. But to his people, it should be a comfort to them. In verse number 15, um, it's promised that the wicked would be cut off. It says, um, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, the publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. God promised to Nineveh destruction and judgment, but he promised to his people peace through to the destruction of Nineveh. And so, 
I'll come to a, a short application of this passage. So we saw the judgment that was to come upon, uh, upon Nineveh because of their sin, because of their wickedness. We saw that it was a very sure judgment, and then we saw the comfort to the saints. So first, I'll apply this to the sinner, those who are without Christ, who have not repented from their sins. Now, to my knowledge, pretty much most everyone in here um, has grown up in church or, or been in church for a significant amount of time and um, have made a profession of faith. But I wouldn't presume that everyone that's within sound of this message is saved. So the first point that we looked at in regards to the judgment of God is that it's, it's, uh, there's a reason for that judgment. And that reason is because of wickedness sin. And so I apply it to you. As a sinner without Christ, you are under judgment. You're under the penalty of death, the sentence of death is upon you. And why is that? It's because you are the enemy of God. The enemy of God because of your wickedness. Just as the city of Nineveh is wicked. Now God's perfect. He's sinless. He cannot stand sin. As the book of Romans says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You and me, everyone in this room is a sinner. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Now, we may think that we're good people, we're good by the world's standards, we're better than this other person. Oh, and, and my neighbor, oh, yeah, you should hear the things that they do. I'm not like that. Um, but in, in Scripture, in, in James chapter 2, the Bible says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Each of us, no matter what our merits are, are guilty of violating God's law, transgressing his law, and we're sinners. When we die, as we most certainly will, we stand before God. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. God's standard for heaven is perfection. And none of us are righteous in his sight. The penalty for our sin is eternal death in hell. Now, just like with Nineveh, God has been merciful. Over and over, he could have destroyed you. He could have ended your life. And even now, you, uh, you may be very close to the end of your life. We don't know. But in Lamentations 3, the Bible says this. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions, because his compassions fail not. Now this is a reference to God's people. So if it's of his mercy that we as children haven't been consumed, how much more merciful is it that God has not consumed his enemies yet? As verse 3 of the passage says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. He may have been slow to anger, he may have been merciful, but it will not last forever. His judgment will come. And yet God has made a way for you to experience his mercy. Through sending his son to die on the cross for your sins. His son was made sin for us and suffered the penalty of sin that we, we could be saved from our sin. That even as wicked and as, as the enemies of God, God made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And punished his son so that our sins could be laid upon him and his righteousness could be laid upon us. That whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, sinner, you're on the path to hell without Christ, without hope. But you don't have to be. You're urged to come to Christ. You're commanded to do so. Acknowledging the fact that you're a sinner in need of repentance and in need of salvation. If you'll do that, if you'll trust in God and, and trust only in Him for your salvation, putting aside anything else, your good, good name, your um, church membership, whatever those things are, trusting those things that you're trusting for salvation, put those things aside and trust only in Christ that you can be saved. Now, as I mentioned, the message of wrath and destruction upon the wicked is just that it should terrify. 
knowing him should terrify you if you are without Christ, because judgment is coming. But now for those who are saved, those who are the children of God, it's a message of comfort, and it's a message of, of salvation. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus speaks about how he's the chief cornerstone. Uh, we mentioned it this morning, but that, that same chief cornerstone is a stumbling block to those that don't believe. That just as we talked about Goliath was somebody that was feared and loved and championed by people on opposite ends of the aisle, the story of, of judgment is a terrible, terrible one to those who are, in, who are facing that judgment. It's very certain there is no hiding from God in, in the day of judgment. But for the saint, it's a message of comfort to you. It's a reminder that, that even though the wicked may seem to prosper, even though it may seem, you may look at, as Hezekiah might have, look over the wall and just see the mass of the enemy horde that's there to, to destroy you. You might think, man, there's nothing that can be done. But remembering that this God who is on your side, whose child you are, has all of his anger and his fury pointed towards the enemy, and you have gotten his forgiveness, and you're not in danger of any of those things. And you're not in danger from the world, not in danger from the wickedness of those who hate God. It's a message of hope and a message of comfort. But it's also a reminder that we should humble ourselves before God. Um, he's done many, and mighty, many wonderful and mighty things for us. But we shouldn't think that any of the good things that we've done, that he has done through us, or the blessings that we have are because of the things that we have done, because of our own abilities. We see that without him, we're nothing. Without him, we're just as helpless as the, the Israelites were facing the army of Sennacherib, that we're defenseless, that we're poor, that we're helpless and needy. Let that remind us to rest upon him, to humble ourselves before him, to love him, to seek to serve him, and to give our all for him, and to do the best that we can as we, we serve him. Now, um, after God destroyed Sennacherib and God destroyed the Assyrians, um, that God fulfilled all of these sorts of things. But that wasn't the end of the story. God did many wonderful things for the, for the people of Israel after that. And it was, as you, as you read um, through the rest of Hezekiah's life, Hezekiah came to the point where he almost died, but God brought him back and, and gave him more time and all of those sorts of things. It just goes to show that God's faithfulness doesn't just stick to um, just when you're, in, when you're in a problem. God delivered his people from this problem but continued to bless them. God is faithful to us at all times, even in hard times and good times. We also ought to be faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and for the blessings that we can find from it. As we look at this passage in Nahum, we see um, many horrible things that are in store for those who fight against you and who would lift themselves up against you. We thank you for those of us that are saved that, that you have reach down to our level to save us and for the blessings that you've given to us besides. I pray that you'd help us to trust in you, to rest in you, to not fret at the strength of the enemy, not to fret at the, um, at the wickedness that we see around us, but that we'd be able to put our trust in you. I pray that you'd help us uh, as believers to realize that we do need you and that it would be a constant state of relying on you that we wouldn't become self-sufficient or think that we're self-sufficient. I pray that if there are any here that have not been saved, that as they've heard the judgment that is in store for those that 
are your enemies, that they would seek to turn away from their sin and that they would seek after you and that you would draw them to yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. For a short time of meditation. If there's something that you'd like to deal with, you can come forward and use the front as an altar. You can stay there in your seat and uh, just ponder the word of God and, and this message as they play. Yeah. Uh -huh.